Recovery is going well. Uh, Rudy Martinez uh, is praying to come home on Wednesday from Baylor Rehab, and so we'll pray for that. And then Joan Williams' husband, Richard, is he's home on hospice, and uh, we need to keep our keep him in our prayers. Uh, for those who are living in our senior living facilities, Flo Smith, Winona Anderson, Lorraine Bellringer, and Tony Myrick. And our homebound members are Dudley Perry, Cindy Bellmeyer, and Bill Guzzi. Let's pray. Father, we bring our praise to you today, and we bring it from all of our hearts. We are blessed that we can be called your children, and we're humbled that you have given to us this incredible opportunity to serve you. You have given us the gifts and the talents that we can serve and minister to one another and use our gifts to glorify you. And Father, we pray today that uh, there are many in our church family who need your healing touch. And I know, Father, that during these times it can be discouraging and defeating, but Lord, you are God who can encourage and strengthen them. And so we pray for each one that we've mentioned today, and you know their, their need and you know their situation. Father, we also pray for the men and the women who serve in the military. Father, we are especially thankful for their commitment to our country. And today we pray for Omar Silva, Sean Carnes, Colin Graves, Abner Mauricio, Tyler McCarty Cogis, Joshua Davis, Nathan Hayes, Colby Hayes, Devin Guzman, Matilda Pritchett, and Jason Maxey. And Father, we also pray for our police officers, firefighters, who lay their line on the, who lay their life on the line every every day. Father, we pray for the people of Ukraine, especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Protect them from the dangers of this terrible war. Provide their needs. And Father, we pray for an end to this war. Father, we ask that you will help us to do everything for your honor and glory. Help us to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but to do everything in humility. And to always consider others more significant than ourselves. May we never look at our own interests, but always in the interest and the needs of others. Father, I pray that you'll help us to grasp the width, the length, the height, and depth of the love of Christ, that we might be filled to the full measure of his love. And help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
You know the most amazing love ever shown to this world is God's love in sending his son Jesus Christ to make all the payment necessary to save us from our sins so that we receive salvation as a gift from God. Our communion scripture is in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and verse 9. It says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the communion table this morning, it's a time of deep reflection, gratitude, and hope. Your Son, Jesus Christ, death on the cross and resurrection, did all the work for us for salvation and eternal life with you. He did what we could not, work that we could never possibly hope to accomplish by ourselves through good works. As Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It is also a time of wonderment as our finite minds try to grasp this unbelievable level of love and mercy that has no bounds. We're amazed of this wondrous act of grace that has saved us sinners through Jesus' atoning death on the cross that took our sin punishment along with him. We ask that this act of grace dwell in our hearts this morning and that we go forward to help and forgive others as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
tractor. I'm like, we're all
Please join us in singing now above all. <laughs> scripture this morning is from uh, the book of Matthew chapter 25 it's actually from the parable of the ta- the parable of the talents and Jesus is speaking and uh, I have just a couple verses here uh, verses 20 through 21 the man who had received the five talents brought the other five master he said you entrusted me with five talents See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let us pray. Father God, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Accept the tithes and offerings we present to you today. May these bring pleasure in your presence. And may our sincere desire to be faithful stewards bring joy to your heart. Please help us to be diligent savers and wise spenders. We ask that you will give us the wisdom to apply our hearts unto understanding, especially in the area of our finances, 
enable us to apply biblical principles of stewardship so we can continue blessing others and supporting your ministries. Bless this time of giving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark and we're going to begin in chapter 11 at verse 27. It's page 717 in the Pew Bible. 717 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin in chapter 11 at verse 27 because this passage sets the, the context for the parable that we're going to look at and it's important that we understand the context. So we're going to start at Mark chapter 11 beginning at verse 27, and then go through chapter 12, verse number 12. Mark 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. So that, by the way, this is the next day after Jesus has cleansed the temple, which we looked at last week. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Talking about cleansing the temple. And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? You tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves and said, Well, if we say it's from heaven... He will ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, well, it's from men, well, they feared the people. For everyone held John, uh, really, it was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) And Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you what, by what authority I am doing these things. Well, he is going to, but with a parable. Chapter 12, verse 1. He then began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he struck, then he sent another servant uh, to them, and they struck him, this man, on the head, and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. But he had one left to send, a son. 
whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, Oh, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inherit the inheritance, it'll be ours. So they, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then, he, then they looked uh, for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left him, and they went away. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this parable, this incredible, the, the incredible truths that are here, I, I pray that our hearts will be open, far more open than the religious leaders of his day. May our hearts be open to hear the word you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we, uh, let's go with this and try it. Might Robbie, if that's okay, we'll try it. We thought we had it fixed, all right? Evidently not. We are, we are living in a culture today. There's a great deal of interest in Jesus. There's a great deal of interest in following Jesus. But, but the, the Jesus that people are following, many of them, is a Jesus of their own making. It is a, a Jesus that makes them comfortable. It is a Jesus who affirms their, their lifestyle, no matter what it is. It is a Jesus who uh, approves of their choices and their decisions, regardless of what they are. You know, a while back I was talking to a young man about attending church. He said, well, this is where I go to church. He said, the reason I like going to that church is because they don't tell me how to live my life. I can be true to who I really am, you know, kind of a thing. What he, what he really wanted was total autonomy over the direction of his life. He wanted to be the captain of his life. By the way, you know the problem with that, though? The problem with that is that following a Jesus of our own making, he isn't going to challenge us to make the changes in our lives that we should be making. And he isn't going to transform our lives into the person that God created us to be. That's the problem with it. You see, only the Jesus of the Bible can really change the human heart. Only the Jesus of the Bible can transform the human will. And Jesus can do that because he has the authority. He has the power. Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke with authority. When he spoke, he spoke with power. When he acted, he acted with power and authority. And it is the Jesus of the Bible who made this statement. He said, anyone who follows me, anyone who comes after me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What Jesus was saying, if you're going to, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny any sense of self-autonomy. You're going to have to deny any sense of being the captain of your life. Because when you follow me, Jesus says, I am the one who is in authority. And so that raises the big question. Where did where does Jesus get this authority? Where does, it, where does it come from that he can make these kind of claims on our lives? Well, you know, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. 
We're looking at the life of Christ. And today Jesus tells a parable. It is an incredible parable to say the least. Now, when you, when you read a parable and you interpret one, the first thing you always do is you look at what prompted Jesus to tell this parable. And with this parable, it was the religious leaders that prompted it. They came to Jesus, challenging him, by what authority are you doing things like cleansing the temple? Who gave you that authority? And remember, we looked at it last week. Jesus, Jesus, after he chased them off the temple mount, he made this statement to them, teaching them. He said, this is my house. And my house is going to be a house of prayer. Now, when, so, when, when, when it's your house, you have, the, uh, you have the right to change the furniture around and, and sometimes do a little spring cleaning. And that's what Jesus was doing. He said, this is my house and I'm doing a little spring cleaning. He was expressing his authority. Well, the religious leaders didn't like that. They were angry. They were hostile. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was in their lane. He was stepping on their toes. He was crimping their style. And so the next day when Jesus comes back to the Temple Mount, they corner him. And they confront him with a question. Two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? By the way, they're not, they're, they're not seeking information. They are pursuing incrimination. And really what they're really, what they're really doing is making a statement. Jesus, you had no authority because we're the ones who give authority around here. This is our place. And we are the ones who make those decisions. Well, with that in mind, Jesus now, he's going to tell a parable. And boy, he's going to give them more than they bargained for. Let me just say that. Um, It's an unforgettable story. And at the end, they all kind of look at each other and say, I think he was talking about us. Well, yeah, you think so? Um, We're going to look at three key relationships in this parable. We're going to look at the relationship between the tenants and the owner. And then we're going to look at the relationship between the messengers the tenants and the messengers, and then we're going to look at the relationship between the tenants and the son. First of all, first, let's look at the relationship between uh, the tenants and the owner. Now, the parable begins with this man. He plants a vineyard, and he goes to great expense to make sure that this vineyard is going to be profitable and good. First of all, after he, he plants some of the choicest vines... He builds a wall around it to make sure that animals can't get in. And then he builds a wine press so that he can harvest the grapes and press them. And then he builds a tower to make sure that thieves don't get in. I mean, he is making a major investment in this uh, this wine press. And he's doing everything to make certain that uh, there's no supply chain problems here. I mean, he's he's got it taken care of from the vine all the way to the market. Everything is, everything is good. And, and by all accounts, by all accounts, this vineyard should be profitable. It should produce an abundance of grapes. And so he gets it going. It's moving smoothly. And then he says, I'm going to rent it out to some tenant farmers. How hard is that? I mean, how simple is their job? I mean, the man has, the owner has done everything. 
All they have to do is come along and, you know, work the ground and prune the vines, harvest the grapes, press the grapes. That's all they have to do. Very simple. But they have to do it according to the owner's word and for his profit. They must do it for by his word. In other words, they can't just... They can't just run this, uh, tend this vineyard uh, doing what they want to do. They have to tend to it according to his word and, according, and, and, and for his profit. And for their efforts, they get rewarded. They get a handsome reward. They will receive a paycheck, you say. Uh, you, you would say at the, at the very end. And, and the owner gets all the profits. After all, if he uh, makes the investment and he takes the risk, he should get the profits. See, it was capitalism before there was capitalism. But let's take a look at it. Who is who in this parable? Let's look at this. In this parable, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And the owner represents God. And everyone who's listening to this recognizes that this is from the book of Isaiah chapter 5. And so let me take a, let's read this from Isaiah chapter 5. Notice, uh, this is uh, the prophet speaking to the Israelites back then. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for crops of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Then in verse 7, they all recognize that Jesus' parable is coming right out of the Old Testament. They know the passage they, that Jesus is talking about then. By the way, the word, the Hebrew word translated bad fruit there, it's the Hebrew word Hebrew word, buhushim. All right, buhushim. Well, everybody is listening, and they all recognize God is the owner. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. So who are the tenants responsible for overseeing and making sure that the the religious leaders of Jesus' day, of, of all time, really, the priests and the Levites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Lord expected the religious leaders to take the wonderful gift that he had given to them and simply produce good fruit. And he has given them everything they need to do it. He's provided the land. He has provided um, the, um, the scriptures, the law to govern them. He has provided a temple for them to worship at. The Lord has given the religious leaders everything they need to produce good fruit. Holiness and righteousness and and um, and faithfulness. All they have to do is govern this according to God's word and for God's profit. Now I know that Jesus is speaking directly to the religious leaders, but I think all of us grapple with this right here. Here's the thing. All of us are tenant farmers. All of us. Think of what, think of all that God has invested in each one of us. First of all, He's given to us His Word, from which we can study about God and God's will and God's ways 
and God's purposes. We, he's given to us the word. He's given to us a church from which we can um, find support and encouragement from one another. He's given to us gifts, spiritual gifts. All of us are gifted by God. We have talents, natural talents. God has invested an education into each one of us. He has invested creativeness into every one of us. God has given to each one of us everything we need to be fruitful and productive and successful. And you know what he's looking for? Good fruit. He's looking for a good return on his investment. He doesn't want to see any buhushim. He wants to see good fruit from all of us. And what, ha- what happens though is, if we take the opinion that, hey, I'm the owner here, and I'm going to make my own decisions, I'm the captain of my own life, and I'm going to go my own direction, the, at the end of our life, the only thing we're going to be able to show the Lord is, buhushim. That's it. Now, Within all of us is this this grapple that we struggle with. Because there's a part of us that knows, hey, I know I'm a tenant. I know that God has invested all this into my life. But there's also a part of us that says, I want to run my own life. I want to be the owner. I want to call the shots. I want to be the captain of my own life. And there's that, that struggle within all of us. But think of the think of what happens, though, if we... If we go through life and we say, I'm the owner, I make my own decisions, and I'm going to make my own choices. You know, at the end of our life, we're going to look back and we're going to say, all I produced with my life is Bushim. My life was meaningless. It was purposeless. Because only the creator who created us, only he can give us purpose and direction in life. It was uh, Blaise Pascal. He was a French philosopher and a mathematician, kind of the, the pioneer in quantum physics, a very brilliant man who really uh, experimented with things like vacuums. And, and he made the comment one time, he said, you know, he said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. And he's right. Only God can fill that emptiness in our lives and and only God can really if we will just turn our lives over to him and let him be the uh, the captain of our life and let him lead our lives if we will just recognize ourselves I'm just a tenant here he's invested all of this in me if I'll just let him lead me in my life then our lives can be fruitful and productive by the way you know if you go to Amazon and you look for the books on self-help books Oh my goodness, there are thousands of them. And you know, the one thing they all have in common? They all say things like, well, if you're going to be successful, you've got to be your own boss. You know, you've got to take charge of your own life. You've got to own it, kind of a thing. That's the very opposite of what the Bible says. It's the opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus says, we're tenants. And we owe the owner. He, He expects to have good fruit from us. He's made this investment in us. And so the first relationship is this relationship that we have with the Father in heaven. He's the owner. We're just simply the tenants. And he's looking for fruit. Now, that brings us to the second relationship we want to look at. All right? The second relationship is between the tenants and the messengers. Now, this is where, in the parable, 
things take a sudden turn for the worse, you might say. I mean, it, it gets ugly. And here's what happens. All right, here's what happens. Um, the tenant farmers make a decision. Hey, we are not going to give the owner back any fruit. All right, we're going to keep it all for ourselves. Notice what happens. Verse number two. At harvest time, he, the owner, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and, and treated him shamefully. And then he still sent another, and that one they killed. Wow. The owner of the vineyard, he knows nothing about this evil plot that the uh, tenant farmers have come up with. And so, naively, he sends a servant to, uh, to collect some of the fruit that was his. It was, it was in the contract. It was his. But when the servant arrives, they beat him up and send him away empty-handed. So the owner, being a very patient man, says, I'll send another one. He sends another servant. This time they, they crush the guys. They give him a, a skull fracture. They beat him to a pulp and send him away empty-handed. They treat him worse than the first guy. And then the owner sends another. And this, I mean, this is outrageous, isn't it? The third man, the, the third messenger, the third servant, they kill him. This is, this has gone from outrageous to criminal. The disrespect that these tenant farmers are showing the, the service. Really, who is it that they are really disrespecting? The owner, isn't it? That's, who the, that's their beef. Their beef isn't with these service that are, their beef is with the owner. I mean, this is a major indictment that Jesus is, is pressing onto the religious leaders who are standing right there in front of him. These religious leaders, they, they're keeping all the glory for themselves. They're keeping all the honor, all the prestige. They're keeping everything for themselves. And what are they returning to God? Nothing. Nothing. And, uh, wow. This shocking display of violence against these servants is also an indictment of the whole nation of Israel for their whole, their history. You know, throughout history, how did they treat the prophets? Not too well. The author of Hebrews, let me, let me read what the author of Hebrews writes of how the, uh, how the Israelites treated the messengers that God sent to them. Here's what he says. Some of these messengers, some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. Now, we're, talk, we're talking about, you know, rocks here, okay? They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. He's talking about the prophets that God sent to the Israelites. And, the, and then he says, the world was not worthy of them. God sent messenger after messenger to the Israelites to say, hey, God is looking for some good fruit here. And it wasn't there. And they were treating the prophets of God terribly. You see what's, being, you see what's going on here? Under the surface of their religious piety. Think about this. 
under the service of their religious piety is a deep-seated animosity toward who? God. Think about that. I mean, their beef was with with God, really. Now, (laughs) the Bible teaches us that all of us have this deep-seated animosity toward God. All of us do. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The natural mind, or the natural, the lost person, is hostile towards God. Romans 8, 7. The lost person is hostile, has animosity toward God. The Bible says that deep down in the heart of every one of us is this, this, this ha- hatred of God because of his claim on our life that we don't want to give it back to him we want to live our own life and what this parable is doing is he is exposing that he is exposing that animosity that is deep within the human heart it's really he's really illustrating what what the rest of the bible teaches but it but it this parable also teaches something else it teaches us that God is pretty patient isn't he he is a gracious, loving God who sends messenger after messenger after messenger to remind us that God is looking for fruit from us. He is looking for a good return on his investment in us. You know, for some of us, that, that messenger that God sent us, that messenger, that was our parents or a parent who, who, would, who tried to raise us in the way of the Lord to teach us to live a life that was fruitful and productive for the Lord. And you know, some children, some children have such a deep animosity for God that uh, they beat their parents. Now, not physically, but they, they focus on their parents' uh, faults and their shortcomings, and they end up turning away from God. Because they have such a deep-seated animosity. Not really toward their parents as much as it is towards God. For some, the messenger is the church. We, as, we here at, at our church, we proclaim the message of the truth. That God is looking for fruit from our lives. That's been the message of our church for, for decades. But you know, some people have such a, a deep animosity towards God... That when you, when you preach these kind of things, they, they get angry and they get mad and they, they leave the church. I'm not going back. It's really, their issue isn't so much with the church, it's with, it's with God. It's that deep-seated anger toward Him. For some, that, um, that messenger is a friend or a relative. For some, that messenger is, is circumstances. But, but God is regularly sending us messengers saying to us, I'm looking for good fruit. I've invested in you. I'm looking for something from you. God is a God of grace. And we ought to listen. So, the relationship that we have with the messengers, our parents, the church, or friends, whoever it is, should be one of listen to them. Let God speak and remind us that yes, God has indeed invested much in me and I, I am to give him a good return on his investment. Let's look at the third relationship. The third one. And that's the relationship between the tenants and the son. And here the parable takes another unusual twist. All right, uh, You notice that, that with each one of these servants, the, uh, 
uh, the tenants are treating them worse as it goes along. And then Jesus, he's speaking to the crowd here. He says, and then he said, he had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. And you know, as, as the crowd are listening to Jesus, you know, there's a, there's a gasp in the crowd. Oh, no. He wouldn't. He wouldn't, he wouldn't think of, no, he would never send his son. Oh yes, he does, doesn't he? He sends his son. And what do the tenants do to the son? Verse number seven. But the tenants said to one another, hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And that's what they do. They kill him. Shocking, isn't it? Stunning. And, and to show you how much disrespect they have for the owner, they throw the son's body out of the vineyard. Don't even bury him. Toss him out. By the way, who is the son in this parable? Yeah, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, when you read, for example, when Jesus was baptized, you know, the father said, this is my beloved son, the one whom I love. And, and what does Jesus say I mean, in the parable? This is the son whom the father loved. Well, there's no question. This is Jesus. He's, he's written himself into the parable. He is the one who comes with the authority of the father. He is the one who comes uh, with the, uh, the authority in the physical realm, authority over the spiritual realm. He comes with all the authority of the Father. And what do they do to him? Wow, they crucify him. You know, Jesus is making an incredible point here. There is deep within the heart of man this hatred and animosity toward God. And it's kind of covered up with a lot of religious piety. In fact, uh, Jesus even said, they hated me without a cause. And you know, the human heart will always be hostile toward God unless there is a supernatural intervention by God himself. Only Jesus of the Bible can change the human heart. You know, here's, here's how we know that we have become a Christian. As Christians, we grasp this. We, has, we, we know. The Holy Spirit has illuminated our mind and our hearts and our eyes. We can see that fact and we, can, we have confessed the fact. We know we're sinners. We know we've transgressed against God. We know we have, we've had this deep animosity towards God. But we also know that God in his love through Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself. We know that and we confess that. You see, the the lost person will never confess their animosity and their hatred towards God. But as Christians, we've come to admit, yes, I've had that sinfulness, this animosity towards God, because the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to the truth. And he has reconciled me. And that animosity that I once had for God has been transformed into love for him. That's the difference right there between a lost person and a saved person. We realize we had animosity toward God, but God in his grace reached down and he reconciled us. And now there's this incredible love that we have for him. Well, let's look at the culmination of this thing. Wow. Verse number nine, Jesus asked, 
Well, what do you think the owner's going to do to all those, <laughs> going to do to these, these guys? I mean, they're all wrapped up in, I mean, they're listening, they're wrapped up in this thing. This is an incredible story. And in Matthew, Matthew says this. Matthew says that the people who are there, they're listening, they're all wrapped up in it. Here's how the people respond. Matthew says, and this is chapter 21, Matthew 21, 41. The people say, oh, he will bring those wretches to a, those wretches to a wretched end. And then he's going to rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. <laughs> you know what? They didn't realize, I don't think, I don't know if they think they realized it, but they just pronounced their own sentence, didn't they? They all recognized, hey, this, this is not right. There has to be judgment on this thing. They're actually taking God's side on this thing. By the way, the Romans will do that in a few years. When the Romans get done, It'll all be gone. And and the vineyard is handed over to the apostles and the Gentiles. Now, one more thing. The parable leaves the son dead, right? I mean, he's on the thrown out into the uh, thrown out of the vineyard, he's laying there dead. Notice what Jesus says in verse ten. Here's how he ends it up. Haven't you read in the scripture stone that the builders rejected? has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, there was a tradition that when the temple was being built, there was a cornerstone that was to be used for the temple. But they didn't choose it. They they rejected it, and they laid it off to the side in the weeds for some time. And then as the temple was being built, they came to the end, and they realized, we don't have a capstone. And that's when somebody, hey, in the weeds. And they go over it, and they get it, it fits. And the cornerstone that was rejected has become the capstone. This is out of Psalm chapter 118. And it is a prophecy. Jesus says, this is a prophecy of me. You're going to reject me. Absolutely. But you know what? I'm going to return. I'm going to return as the capstone. And as Jesus said, this is marvelous in our eyes. So, what can we take out of this thing? I think, here's what I want us to take home today. Jesus, we asked a question, all right? Where does Jesus get the authority to, to say and do the things that he did? Jesus was sent by the Father with all the authority of heaven. He was sent by the Father with all the authority of heaven. And we should take it seriously, shouldn't we? If he comes with that much power and authority. You know, the Lord is patient. No question about that. The Lord is very patient. Um, But if you read the parable closely, his patience runs out, doesn't it? He's long-suffering. But his long-suffering runs out. The day of grace eventually ends. It runs out. And so, if you've never come to faith in Christ, make that decision before that day of grace ends. If you're not bearing fruit for the Lord, if all you've got for your life is Bushim, this is the opportunity. I'm the messenger today, you might say, that says, okay, let's, let's, get, let's get our life back on track. And I want to produce some good fruit for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this incredible parable. Um, it reveals a lot about who we are. 
But it also reveals a lot about you. You're the God of grace and love. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here today who's never come to faith in Christ, that today, this will be the day they put their trust in Him. And I pray, Father, for all of us here today, that we'll remember that you have invested so much in our lives. And we, we owe, we owe you the fruit of our labor. So help us, Father, to take that seriously today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand, please, as we sing, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. All three stanzas, please. in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in His justice which is more than liberty. There is a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. and elders. Let's have a closing prayer. Father, again, we are blessed. You have been so gracious. You've been, you have invested in us so much. And I pray that uh, we'll leave here today more determined to be fruitful and productive for you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We shall sing on that beautiful shore of melodious songs of rest and our spirit shall sorrow no more not a sigh for the blessing of Meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet.